Hear now the word of God. And he was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? Now, I don't know about you. Every time I read this text, I think we're talking about a candle, right? It's a flame. And the point of the illustration is not this, but I always get the vision of somebody putting a candle under a bed. And what happens when you put a candle under a bed? It catches on fire, right? That is not the point of the passage, but I'm just going to say there's a lot of reasons not to put a candle under a bed, including you don't want to catch the house on fire. So, verse 22, for nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you and more will be given to you besides. In other words, the measurement of the gospel that you receive is in, in accordance with your hearing of the gospel and you're listening to it. Verse 25. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. And he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Verse 30. And he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God or by what parable shall we present it? It's like a mustard seed which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up. And becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. Would you pray with me? Father God, we ask in the moments to come that we would continue to explore the depths of the mystery and the wonder of your kingdom. God, we ask that your kingdom would come, that it would come on earth as it is in heaven, and that it would come into your church and into the hearts of your people. And Lord, if there's someone here who's discouraged this morning, that they would find a, a fresh word of encouragement in what you have said about your great coming harvest. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the way of introduction this morning, I want to call your attention to a man by the name of William Carey. William Carey was a pastor in England, and in 1793, he'd been feeling the call of God upon his life to go and uproot his life and take his life and family to India. Carey is called the father of modern missions, the modern missions movement, because his study of Scripture compelled him to challenge the idea that Christianity was only for places where Christ was already known. He became convinced that God is calling Christians to attempt great things for God and to expect great things from God. And to have that expectation in places where it seemed unlikely that God could do anything. So what did Kerry do? He uprooted his life and he moved to India. Again, this is 1793, not 1993. And he did 
crazy things. He started a school for children and he trained them to succeed in life and then he gave them the gospel. He established a university. He learned many languages. He wrote grammar manuals in Bengali, Araya, Assamese, Marathi, Hindi, and Sanskrit and he translated the Bible into all of those languages. And while Carrie's contributions were vast, it was a challenging and physically exhausting and tiring and discouraging work. He labored in India for seven years before he saw one person come to know Jesus Christ. He lost children and two wives in service to Christ in India. As Aiken writes, he shared the gospel for more than 40 years, but the fruit of his labor was minimal. Or at least it seemed that way during his lifetime. But history would see his contributions very differently. You see, if you go to India today, there's Carey's name on just about everything. Because through the unfailing love of William Carey for the people of India and his relentless campaign against the forces of darkness, India was literally transformed. Asian historian Hugh Tinker summarizes Carey's impact on India in this way. In Serampur, on the banks of the river Huli, the principal elements of, of modern South Asia, the press and the university and social consciousness and schools, they all came to light. How is it possible? It's possible because Carey believed the Bible. He read Mark 4. He believed that God would surely get the harvest despite what his eyes saw. Carey didn't go to India just to plant one church or to set up a medical clinic for the poor. He was driven by a more comprehensive and compelling vision than that. He wanted to disciple the whole nation. Carey saw India not as a foreign country to exploit, but as his heavenly father's land to be loved and served, a society where truth and not ignorance needed to rule. And so as he looked outward across the land and asked himself a question, this is the question he asked, and I submit to you it's the question we ought to all ask. If Jesus were the Lord of India, what would it look like? What would it be different? If Jesus was the Lord of the Roanoke Valley, what would it look like? What would be different? If Jesus was the Lord of my parenting, what would it look like? What would be different? If Jesus was the Lord of my marriage, what would it look like? What would be different? This question set his agenda and led to his involvement in a remarkable variety of activities aimed at giving God the glory in his life. Today in India, churches are being planted and replicated at an exponential rate, perhaps faster than any other country in the world except for China. But Kerry never got to see the fruit. And yet before Kerry died, this is what William Kerry said. The future is as bright as the promise of God. What kept William Carey going in the dark and discouraging days in India was not his intellectual prowess. It wasn't his ability to do anything. It was the promise of God that we find in God's word. And the promise is that though it is costly, though it will require us to go the way of the cross, do not doubt that the kingdom of God has come, is coming, and will come on earth as it is in heaven. Don't be deceived by your present reality. Because we have the power of God in Christ. And so what Jesus is teaching us in Mark 4 is that as we keep on seeking the coming kingdom of God, there's three things we must do. 
We must keep shining the light of Jesus by listening to his word. We must trust God to produce God's harvest. And we must be encouraged and motivated by the emerging greatness of the kingdom of God. Oh, if we could see how great the kingdom is going to be, we would not lose heart. First, we must keep shining the light of Jesus by listening to his word. How many of you here this morning, by a show of hands, came to know Jesus through the ministry of Billy Graham? I see a few. How many of you this morning came, know someone who came to know Jesus through the ministry of Billy Graham? 2.2 billion people heard the gospel through the ministry of Billy Graham. 3.2 million people came to saving faith through the ministry of Billy Graham because he knew verse 21. The lamp has come into the world not to be hidden, but to be shined out into the darkness of the world. Jesus says the lamp is not now coming to be put under a basket or under a bed. Is it not coming so that it should be placed on a candlestick? Of course a candle is supposed to be placed on a candlestick. The reason you light a candle is to avoid tripping over beds or couches or bushels and baskets of dry goods. Not to put it under them. I mean, anybody here this morning that has a light switch in your children's bedroom, when you walk in, you turn it on. Unless, of course, your child is sleeping. And if they're sleeping, what do you do? Thank you, Steve Jobs. You grab your iPhone and you turn on your little iPhone flashlight. Why? Because if your child's room is like my son's room, there's trains and cars and animals and Legos waiting for your tender little feet. <laughs> A candle is meant to be put up high and turned on bright so that the, other, the things of the world that would trip you up and break you down can be exposed for what they are. The reason the light has come is so that the disciples, that's you and me, should keep on shining it. It's a, the, the tense of the Greek word is should keep on shining. In other words, we've got something to do. The light has come and the light is Jesus and our job is to keep on shining it into the world so that the world won't keep tripping all over itself and stumbling on the Legos of life. But instead the light could shine and they could see the darkness and the sin and the destruction all around them for what it is in the light of who Jesus is. So here's the question. Why would we encounter the light of Christ and not put, bother putting him on display? Or why would we just save the light for Sunday morning? That's the pastor's job. We'll get the light at 11 o'clock on Sunday. You see, the lamp is not just a lamp. The translators do a pretty poor job in most of the translations. It says a lamp is not brought. That's not what the Greek says. It says the lamp. You see, this is no ordinary lamp. It's Jesus. Jesus is the lamp of God who has come to bring light and revelation. John 12, 46, he's the light of in the world. John 1 4 is the light of men. John 1 9 he's the true light and his brightness is so bright we see in Revelation 22 that when he returns we won't even need a lamp. We won't even need the sun for the Lord God himself will illumine us. Just as the lampstand was placed in the tabernacle so that all could see Jesus has come to give light to all people around the world and he's doing it through his church. The place that tabernacles the spirit of God. We are are the ones who've received the light of Christ that we might illumine the world. We know that Jesus is the lamp because Jesus doesn't say it is brought, but it is coming. It's the same word that John the Baptist uses of Jesus when he says, After me, one is coming who is mightier than me. 
In other words, Jesus is the light who has come, is coming, and continues to come to the world through the faithfulness of his disciples. In the Old Testament, a lamp is used as a metaphor for God. It's used as a metaphor for the coming Davidic Messiah. It's used as a metaphor for the Word of God. Guess what? Jesus is all three. He is God in the flesh. He is the anointed King of David. And He is the Word made flesh. Jesus is the lamp that has come and is coming through the faithfulness of of us to light the way. This is why Jesus says in verse 22, Nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. Although the glory of God in Christ was concealed for a moment by Jesus' humanity, it would soon be on display in Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and His ascension. Jesus was only hidden for a brief moment so that we could see even more clearly how glorious He is. And guess what, church? The time for concealing Jesus is over. You don't have to worry about that part of Mark where it says he's hidden, it's a secret, he's got to get to the cross. Jesus has gotten to the cross and he's given you the power to take up your cross and die daily to shine the light in a lost and dying world. So if the light of Christ has broken into the darkness of your life, guess what? He has done so in order that you might use his light. To hide a lamp under a bed is silly. It's to misuse it. And to hide the light of Jesus is to misuse Jesus. There's so many people that want to make Jesus just about them. Just about my comfort and my peace and my joy. The whole reason you get the light of Christ isn't just for all of those initial things that we feel individually, but so that our marriages would prosper, our families would prosper, our neighborhoods would prosper, our communities would be changed as we reflect the light of Jesus. This is why Jesus commands us in verses 23 and 24. Again, he commands us to keep on listening to the gospel. Because if we fail to keep on hearing the gospel, look at 24 and 25, we lose the light of the gospel. We've just seen the Olympics. I love the Olympics. Any of you love the Olympics? I read an article that said young people aren't watching the Olympics anymore. I guess that means I'm not young. Newsflash. Um, I, I thought I like to think of myself as young, but apparently I'm an old fuddy duddy that likes to stay up and watch the Olympics. So I, I love the Olympics. The training, the passion, the moment. I mean, those people that come down on those skis and do all those twists and contortions and land on their feet, how do they do that? It's crazy. But you know what else is crazy? It's crazy for us to see that and think they just woke up, got out of bed one day and did that. It didn't just happen like that. Hours of training and intensity and exercising. So it is with the gospel. Some of you this morning, why do I go hear a sermon? Why should I go hear a sermon this morning? Why should I read my Bible? Why should I remind myself of the grace of God in Christ every day by looking at my deep sinfulness and his even greater love for me? Why should I do that? Here's why. Because if you don't use it, you will lose it. And we can't anymore move on from hearing of our need for Christ than a professional athlete can move on from his training. As Edwards writes, understanding the kingdom of God is not a human ability, but a capacity created by Jesus Christ in the heart of the believer. How does this happen? God works through the hearing of his word to create that capacity. Here's how it works, church. As we are reminded of our deep need for the gospel and overwhelmed by gratitude for what God has given us in Christ, the gospel gets more and more of us and we are motivated then to give more of ourselves 
for Christ so our king can receive the harvest of the nations that he deserves. But there's a word of caution here that comes in the next parable. And the word of caution is that we would begin to think that we can do something in and of ourselves to make the kingdom grow. We've got to remember, even as we expose ourselves to God's word, that it is God who must do the work. God must give the harvest. We must trust God's word to produce God's harvest. You see, at this point in the text, I think the disciples could be forgiven for being a bit tired of Jesus' command to listen. Listen, 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 listen. Okay, Jesus, we are listening to you. But where is the kingdom? Because we're looking around and not much has changed. I mean, your teaching's pretty amazing. Your miracles are pretty nice. And it's really fun to see you put the scribes in their place. But people are still dying every day. And if this is a kingdom, Jesus, where is your army? And where is your crown? I mean, are you saying... Jesus, that we just keep listening to you and then boom, the kingdom appears? And to that question, Jesus says, well, pretty much. (laughs) And then he says, think about it like this. Think about farming. Isn't it amazing that Jesus uses farming? He doesn't say, think about a castle. He doesn't think about kings and princesses. and He doesn't think about army. Think about farming. And in particular, think about the farmer. Now, I don't know about you. When I think about farming, I think about farmers as some of the most hardworking people ever. I mean, farming is hard work. You got to get up and you got to till the soil and you got to be ready and you got to know the seasons and all this stuff that farmers do. I respect farmers as hard, hard workers. And yet Jesus uses a parable about farming as an illustration of our inability to do anything unless God does it. Isn't that amazing? You see, the farmer can do all sorts of things. My dad's trying to get a garden to grow in our backyard. Good luck. I mean, it's shady, it's rocky, and he brought in soil, and he's, he's given up. He's, now he's building garden boxes. He's just, I'm going to start with my own soil. And the, garden can do, the, the gardener or the farmer can do all sorts of stuff, but when it comes down to the actual growing of a crop, the farmer can't do anything. He is utterly powerless to make seeds do what seeds do. Look at verse 28. By itself or automatically the soil produces a crop. In the Greek, that word automatically is at the front of the sentence for emphasis. In other words, God is the one who grows God's kingdom. The word of God has within it the power of its own success and its own triumph. How do you stay faithful when you don't see any results around you? You are ever mindful of the fact that God's word will not return void. It will eventually get its harvest. The farmer goes to sleep at night. He wakes up in the morning. And although he knows an awful lot about farming, the transformation from soil to crop is something that is beyond his explanation. Do you see that in verse 27? How it happens, he does not know. Isn't that frustrating? That is so frustrating for us analytical types. Are any of you analytical types? You've got to know how it works. You see, what Jesus is saying is Christianity is difficult for the analytical types who have to know everything. What Jesus is saying is this. There's some things you can't know. There's some things you can't explain But you don't have to know everything about how God does His work. You just need to be constantly exposed to the gospel and trust God to do His work. 
you got to get over your need to know and start marinating yourself and your mind and your heart and your life in the gospel and watch what God does with that in your life. Watch what he does with your pain and with your regrets and with your disappointments and with your marriage failures when you go to the gospel and recognize what you've been given in Christ and suddenly you are free to get over yourself and the expectations of the world and to give yourself away to others so that the light of Christ might shine through you. Go to sleep on the gospel and get up day by day with the gospel on your mind and on your lips and watch and wait. That is the job of the farmer with respect to the seed. Watch and wait and the harvest will surprise you. As Edwards writes, Jesus likens the kingdom of God to a process of growth. Despite the farmer's absence and ignorance, despite the farmer's absence and ignorance, the soil that keeps on hearing the word of God will surely produce a crop. Aiken says it this way, Plant the word in a receptive soul and it goes off. Brothers and sisters, this is a picture of sanctification. What is sanctification? If you write down notes, I want you to get this definition. Sanctification is becoming in practice what God has already declared you to be in truth. The moment you're saved, God gives you everything you need for life and godliness, but it takes a lifetime for that to work its way out in your life. Every time you're exposed to the gospel, you see more of your sinfulness and become even greater for His grace in your life. That's the process of sanctification. For those who are in the kingdom of God, we are a work in progress. And the completed work of Christ on the cross counts completely in my place. Everything necessary for me to grow up into the crop that God wants me to be is present in the gospel seed at the moment that it mixes with the soil of my life. But it's a process that takes time. Edwards writes, the seed, like the gospel, prospers of itself. And once it is sown, it sets in motion a process that leads to a harvest. Jesus is like a farmer who sows with complete confidence in the harvest that's coming. When we keep on listening to the word and submitting ourselves to Christ, the harvest will come on time and it will come in order. Did you see that in verse 28? First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain maturation in the gospel takes time it takes consistency it takes exposure a seed does not become a cornstalk overnight and while the gospel makes an immediate impact in a new believer's life it also takes a lifetime for us to re- be refined and matured into what god would have us to be you see some of you this morning you say what what's the point daniel the farmer does all this work but ultimately he can do nothing Some of you this morning are pretty impressed with your work. But the farmer's pretty impressed with the harvest that God gave. Your life seems godly, but it's really driven by the appearance of godliness. You see, the problem is, us analytical types, we like checklists, man. Give me the old offering envelope that had all the check boxes. I brought my offering. I studied my Sunday school lesson. I brought my Bible. I read my Bible every day this week. I went to 17 prayer meetings. I am a super Christian. Look at me. Jesus says, look out. Do more. Be better. Give more. These are dead and dying motivations. They will not sustain you for the long term. You want to know what will keep you going day after day in the gospel and what will let your heart look more and more like Jesus is calling you to look like? This is the motivation. Look at what Jesus has done for me. 
Can you believe that he went to the cross for me? When I stare down into my heart and see the wicked yuckiness of my life and I see what Jesus did for me, I behold what manner of love the Father has shown me that he would give his son so that I could be called a son of God or that you could be a daughter of God. There is the supernatural motivation that God gives you and he gives it to you in his word and we meditate on it and we stew on it and that motivation never dies. And guess what? It will produce fruit in your life far better than any maintenance of a checklist. Now, some of you are thinking, Pastor, I, I thought this parable was about the kingdom of God coming all over the globe. And you're right, it is. But the kingdom of God has to be expanding inside of us for us to be a part of the expansion of God's kingdom. Let me say that again. The kingdom of God's got to be expanding and exploding in you in order for you to be a part of the expansion of the kingdom of God. We will not be in the visible kingdom of God in the future if God is not now doing his invisible work. The farmer never saw when the seed became a seedling. It just happened. We will never, though, be in the kingdom of God if God doesn't do his invisible work in the soil of our lives. You see, this, this is a radical new orientation. Every other faith is out there trying to earn their way to whoever God is in their life. But we can't earn our way. What this means is the key to being in and growing in God's kingdom is our dependence upon God more than our determination. It is our desperation for God more than our perspiration for God. It is our worship of God, glorying in His glory more than it is our work. It is our saturation in the gospel before it is our serving in the gospel. This means we pray with an utter dependence that God would grow us up into who we ought to be. And when we begin to see some fruit, we don't say, look at who I am. We say, look at what God did. This means we must be a people of joyful and quiet and humble and dependent prayer. A people who are ready and eager and delighting to give Jesus the credit for all that he does in our lives. You see, we can't make the kingdom of God grow any more than a farmer can make a seed grow. America did not vote in the kingdom of God when we voted in Trump. And we didn't vote out the kingdom of God when we voted in Obama. We certainly should vote. But we ought to be careful how we speak of how the kingdom advances. The kingdom advances when the word of God does its work in a people. Now we vote and we vote wisely because we love our neighbor and we love our enemy. And public policy impacts those we are trying to reach with the gospel. But we must not forget, church, the growth of God's kingdom is God's business. And he is actively at work growing the kingdom in those places where his word is getting down into the soil of his people's lives. Satan would like nothing better than for you to be distracted by everything else in the world other than the gospel. Do you believe that? Do you see that in your own life? How quickly you can scroll on a Facebook feed and chase a conversation that has nothing to do with shining the light of Jesus in the world and then you spend 30 minutes or an hour, an hour and 30 minutes camped out making a comment on somebody's comment that's not going to do anybody any good. What are we doing? We got one shot. We got one shot to shine the light of Jesus into a lost and dark and dying world. 
And when we get the word out there, the word, the promise of God is the word will do its work. And we need to get the word out because verse 29 says, when God's crop is ready, immediately, immediately, he puts in the sickle. You see, when God comes ready to reap his ready harvest, there aren't any second chances. When Jesus comes to gather his people to himself, make sure that you have been counted among the harvest of God's people so that you won't be taken away and burned forever. That's the implication of that text. Make sure that you are in God's harvest. And some of you this morning, you've heard about Jesus, you've heard about the gospel, but you've never surrendered your life to the work that God must do in your heart. And today just might be the day that you need to give your life to Jesus and make sure that you're in the harvest. And if you know that on that day that you'll be in that great and glorious harvest, then there's a third thing you need to do in light of this text. We must be encouraged and motivated by the emerging greatness of God's kingdom. When you think about the kingdom of God, what do you see? When you think about it in your life, when you think about it in your marriage, when you think about it in your... Are you discouraged? I get discouraged sometimes because what I want to see for our church and what I want to see for the Roanoke Valley and what I believe God would have for the Roanoke Valley is so much infinitely greater than what I now see. Sometimes it drives me nuts because I want it now. Are y'all, y'all listening? I know we're late, but, but do you live where I live? Do you ever get discouraged? Uh, y'all are all just super spiritual Christians. Well, I'm glad. I'm, y'all go home then. You're priest to me. See, Jesus is, he knows. He knows we're going to encounter discouragement. He knows we're going to try to do the right things. We're going to try to show the light of Jesus in the world. We're going to have hiccups along the way. And we're going to come back and we're going to hear the gospel. And we're going to be reminded it's not about what I've done. It's about what Jesus did for me. But I don't see the harvest of fruit in my life, in my marriage, in my parenting, in my workplace, with that neighbor, with that friend, with that guy who's going to come at Thanksgiving and he's going to lecture me on my faith and I've been praying that the gospel would have its way in his life and I'm just discouraged. And to that viewpoint, Jesus paints a picture for us in verse 30. I love how Jesus says this. How can we picture the kingdom of God? Do you need a picture this morning? Do you need a picture this morning that's different than the picture that your eyes presently see? Because that's what Jesus paints for you. How can we assemble, how can we put together our thoughts on, a ki- on the kingdom in a way that really captures the essence and the reality of what we, not only what we see, but what, we, what we've yet to see. You see, Jesus then says, it's like a mustard seed. When you compare it to the other seeds, it's microscopic. It's insignificant. But who evaluates seeds by how big they are when they go into the ground? You don't do that. You evaluate a seed when it's fully grown. So we shouldn't evaluate the kingdom of God and our participation in it based on the size of the mustard seed, but based on the size of the plant that will be produced. And it's a plant that we don't yet see unless we trust the promise of God. It's come to that again. We've got to believe God. Look at the end of the mustard seed. Other plants that came from bigger seeds are smaller. But the mustard seed is the king of the vineyard. It becomes a plant that 
that produces not just a harvest. It is so big, it even provides big old branches for the birds of the air. As Schlatter writes, what appears to be the smallest is nevertheless the greatest. In that which is hidden, the foundation of a work is laid that will encompass the whole world. Do you see the promise of Christ to those who keep on listening to the message of grace and shining the light of Christ through their lives? Though you don't see it now, though you tend to get discouraged, be patient. Wait. Trust like a farmer who pillows his head and rises up in the morning believing that the harvest is coming because the kingdom is coming. And it is going from tiny to tremendous. It's going from microscopic to monumental, from seemingly, seemingly insignificant to stunningly incredible, from buried to bountiful, from hidden to harvestable. And Edward says God's reign will be larger and more encompassing than the world can imagine. So, for the discouraged church this morning, remember the mustard seed. Never underestimate the creative power of God in His Word for God will have his harvest. And he wants your ambitions for the glory of Christ to be made known, to be as big as his are. How big are they? All people, all over the globe. You say, Daniel, where did you get that in this text? You're always talking about Jesus getting the gospel all over the globe. I don't see that. All I see in this passage is a bunch of horticulture and then some random birds that show up. Exactly. This parable is all about God's mission to, the, to, to birds of every feather. You see, Mark is quoting, Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, birds nesting in branches refers to the inclusion of Gentiles in God's kingdom. And shade in the Old Testament often refers to a place of God's protective Grace. What Jesus is saying about his kingdom is that all the peoples of the world are going to be gathered there. We are laboring for a harvest of every tribe and tongue and language and nation, and we won't let anything detract us from God's heart to reach all kinds of people. And then once more in verses 33 and 34. Mark turns to the theme of hearing. For the tenth time in one chapter, Mark takes us back to the importance of hearing. Jesus was speaking the word to them, verse 33, as they were able to hear. Have you heard the gospel this morning? Will you purpose in your life to keep on hearing the gospel? I pray that you will because the key to remaining encouraged and bold and strengthened in this life is to keep on hearing from the king of the kingdom. And when the world tells us we don't stand a chance, we don't let the world define our reality, we let Jesus define our reality, and we let Jesus determine our victory. And Jesus has said that the kingdom of God is coming as we truly hear his word, as we shine the light of Christ, and as God grows the kingdom from seemingly insignificant to a worldwide shelter of his grace that encompasses all people by the power of his word. How did William Carey keep tilling the soil in India when it seemed that it had no impact? He believed that the future is as bright as the promise of God. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, 
we pray that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. God, we thank you that in Christ your kingdom has come and through the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts that it is emerging within us individually. God, that it is emerging within our church corporately. We pray that we would be marked a year from now by a much greater kingdom consciousness than which we presently have. God, that in the midst of discouraging moments that you would give us the ability to look to the good end and to keep fighting and driving and sharing and shining the light of Jesus with confidence that your word will do your work. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.